amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Lady Justice is a true crime podcast, therefore deals with incidents of violence, disturbing imagery, and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. The Lady Justice podcast wishes to offer the deepest condolences to the victims' families and wishes to offer thanks to those that work in emergency services. Hello my lovelies and welcome to yet another episode of Lady Justice, a true crime podcast. Lady Justice is a weekly podcast that covers fascinating cases, both past and present. My name is Chantal, and I'm your friendly true crime junkie with slight caffeine addiction issues. I hope you're all doing incredibly well and have had a glorious week. As usual, before I get into this week's episode, I just want to ask you guys a huge favour. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating and Leave me a review where you can. Because sharing is caring, I do want you to tell everyone you know. Share it on social media and get the word out. It really does make the world of difference. If you would like to contact me about anything at all, please feel free to do so via social media or my email, which you'll find in the show notes. This week, before the act of kindness, there is a promo from my good friend Tom over at the Deadly Bones podcast. It's a podcast about monsters, artichokes and an 80s radio DJ lost in a radioactive future and it's utterly entertaining. So listen out for that just a little later. A three-year-old girl skipped the 20 metres from home to an ice cream van to buy an ice pop on a warm summer's afternoon. She would never return. So without further ado, Here is some background on the location and time frame of this case. We are popping back to 1994, the year that saw the gruesome discoveries at 25 Cromwell Street and the crimes of Fred and Rose West come to light. The Channel Tunnel was officially opened and the first ever Whitby Goth Weekend was held that year as well. One of my favourite bands, and according to Spotify 2019 Wrapped, My most listened to band, The Charlatans, released their Up To Our Hips album this year and it saw the deaths of comedian Bill Hicks, Hammer Horror legend Peter Cushing and the carry-on film regular Terry Scott, amongst others. 
We are travelling just up the A19 from Stockton in our last episode for the last in our Tees Valley cases. We are off to Hartlepool, a town on the northeast coast. It's famed for a monkey and an odd tale that just happens to be true. Hartlepoolians are known as monkey hangers due to a ship containing French soldiers washing up on the beach in the 1700s. The French were killed, but they had a pet. The townsfolk had never seen a monkey before, so assumed he was just an ultra-hairy French spy and hung him on the beach. So known is this story, it's had songs sung about it, and in 2002, a man dressed in a monkey costume, known as Hangus the Monkey, was elected the town mayor. Nope, not even a joke. Famous folk from the town include sports journalist Jeff Sterling, Fleetwood Mac original member Jeremy Spencer, Iron Maiden legend Yannick Gears, and the director that gave us Alien and Blade Runner, Ridley Scott, who studied at CCAD in the town and produced his first film, Boy and Bicycle, along the headland. As always, all my sources will be listed in the show notes. This week I am going to be giving an extra trigger warning out as this case does involve sexual offences committed against children. Rosie Frances Palmer was born in Hartlepool on August 1st, 1990 to Beverly Yates, a midwife, and Martin Palmer, a legal manager for an international firm. Her parents split when she was still a baby and Martin moved to Bristol, yet they stayed in regular contact and had a good relationship. Beverly soon met a new partner, John Thornton, who took care of Rosie as his own, and in the beginning of 1994, Rosie became a big sister to Emma, whom she adored. The young family lived just 60 yards from the sea in the headland area of the town, on Henrietta Street. She was a happy, smiling child, who was greatly loved. Her grandfather, Wilf, described the bright little girl as a kiss from heaven, whilst Jim Smith, Sunday school leader at the Salvation Army Citadel, said that Rosie was a happy, innocent little girl, the shy girl who would not talk to strangers. Everyone in the close-knit community, along the packed streets of the headland, knew of Rosie, Her flame-red hair and glasses made her stand out, and her infectious smile made her memorable. It was a warm day on Thursday, June 30th, 1994. Rosie had been at the St. Helens Nursery for much of the day, until her stepfather, John, came to pick her up at 2.40pm. Rosie played on the street just outside of her home with some friends until she heard an ice cream truck in the distance, making its way closer to the street. As pretty much all kids do, she ran inside and begged her mother for some change to go buy an ice lolly. Beverly reached in her pocket and gave her little red-cheeked girl a few coppers and smiled as she ran out of the front door. That would be the last time her mother would see her alive. The ice cream van, driven by Gary Amerigo, pulled up just 20 metres from Rosie's home at just before 
He served the little girl wearing red and white checked shorts and a white t-shirt with a daisy on the front with an ice pop and a few penny sweets. He didn't notice her as she skipped away. But that was the last official sighting of little Rosie Palmer. When the three-year-old didn't return home for dinner that evening, panic, as you can imagine, sunk in. I am a mother and I honestly cannot imagine that kind of pain, the worry that you would have at that moment. Both Beverly and John began to knock around the neighbours and calling all those that may have known where Rosie was, to no avail. The police were called and a search was organised immediately. Being so close to the sea, authorities did believe that there was a possibility that she may have been washed away and those from the Coast Guard and RNLI, Royal National Lifeboat Institution, were called in to search the coastline. More than 80 officers and 100 volunteers came out onto the streets to help search for the little girl that first night. Tracker dogs and helicopters were deployed by police, with DCI Ray Mallon leading the search. Ray Mallon, who went on to be the mayor of Middlesbrough, was a highly decorated officer. He was so successful in his reduction of crime he became known in the national press as Robocop. He was to say to the press that had quickly assembled in the north part of the town that they could not rule out the possibility of an abduction. Rosie was not found that night, yet no one stopped looking. Throughout the night and in the early morning, groups of locals could be seen searching the beaches and the back alleys of the streets. It was accepted that Rosie, even at three years old, knew of stranger danger and would not have run off with someone she did not know. Door-to-door inquiries in the locality were taking place and many of the homes searched from attics to back gardens. The police studied files of all known sex offenders and had linked up with the National Criminal Intelligence Service paedophile computer in London and the Specialist Child Sex Offender Database in Derby. Peter Mandelson, Labour MP for Hartlepool, said in a news interview that aired on the second night of Rosie's disappearance, It is a very strong and close-knit community in Hartlepool, and frankly, people feel absolutely gutted by what has happened. Our hearts really go out to Rosie's parents and family. Many in the area came out in support at a prayer service held at the Salvation Army Citadel before continuing to look for the girl in all possible places. That evening, with no sightings or any luck in searches across the town, abduction did seem the number one theory. A weeping image of Beverly lit up television screens across the country on the 6 o'clock news. She said whilst being comforted by a police officer, I just want my little girl back. She is only three and if someone has got her, please let her go. If anyone knows where she is or if anybody has seen her, I beg them, please tell the police. 
It wasn't until 72 hours after Rosie had gone missing without a trace that any new information would be known. Sirens and lights were seen and heard to be streaming into Frederick Street opposite Henrietta Street on the 3rd of July and many stopped instantly knowing exactly what it was in relation to. Rumour on the street by the gathered crowds said they'd seen a chase and then a man being bundled into the back of a police car. When the murmurs in the crowd started to speculate to who it was, one voice said above the others, it was Tony the pervert. As the crowd was growing and the area taped off by police, Beverly was seen running down the street. She gave out a wail that only a mother can when losing a child, a soul-piercing screech, as she knew in her gut what had happened. She knew they'd found her little girl. She tried to break past the police, only to be held back by three ladies who took her home. In an upstairs flat that had been twice previously searched by officers, the horrific discovery of a tiny body was found in a plastic bin liner in an airing cupboard. The body was badly mutilated and had been found without her shorts and underwear. They were found in a separate bag within the home. The body was in a very bad condition. So bad, in fact, that Beverly was refused to see it. The police then shut down the search operation for Rosie Palmer. The man whose flat the discovery had been made in was Sean Anthony Armstrong, known as Tony, or as locals called him, Tony the Pervert. Tony had been born at the Littlethorpe Maternity Hospital in Easington, County Durham, just north of Hartlepool, to an unwed 18-year-old mother, Rachel Teal, on the 30th of June, 1962. His father was also his grandfather, Joseph James Steele, his mother's father. He was an only child, and for the first few years of his life, he was brought up by his maternal grandparents, due to Rachel's frequent hospitalisation for mental health issues that she'd been suffering from since the age of 14. Rachel did meet an older man during this time, George Armstrong, 15 years her senior, who married her and formally adopted her child, Tony, who was the three at the time. Tony did not have a strong relationship with George, but did believe him to be his biological father until the age of 25. George was to say about Tony in his youth, when he was growing up, he was just like a normal lad, a bit headstrong at times, but he wouldn't take me as his father. George and Tony ceased any contact in October 1989 after an incident in which Tony broke into his stepfather's home and stole £180 of holiday money. George was to say that as Tony grew older, he had no contact with any of his family other than his mother as even his aunts and uncles believed him to be a complete disappointment. Tony, as a child, was very close to a cousin, a bond born out of being a similar age and only children. 
This cousin, Andrew Christopher Steele, was killed in a car accident in 1969, when they were both seven. Tony was later to say about this time, I became a bastard, I became hateful, and I got mad at everyone. It was just a month after this incident that Rachel, Tony's mother, began to participate in inappropriate sexual behaviour with her son. This continued until he was 13 years old, in which they began to have full sexual intercourse, which happened until he was 16 years old. This was happening as Tony started his attendance at Easington Secondary Modern School at 11 years old. He was an overweight child and had little people he could call a friend, with many describing him as a loner. His mother at this time, due to the nature of their relationship, had tried to keep Tony from his peers and insisted that he came straight home from school and was not allowed to play outside. When he was 14 in 1976, he began to attend the nautical school at Campton Square, Seaham. He was still somewhat a loner, but did do well academically and gained five O-levels and two CSEs in seamanship and navigation. It was during this summer that he had odd jobs and started to branch out from his mother's wing. He worked as a delivery assistant for a retail company and as a hand at a local sawmill. It was just as he'd turned 15 when he'd begun dating. And this coincided with a letter written by his mother that he was making overt sexual advances towards her. Dr Whaley, a consultant child psychiatrist, was then to refer him to the Durham Joint Child Guidance Services. It was suggested that he may respond well to psychotherapy and it was agreed that his behaviours were that of a disturbed boy. But medical staff did deny his mother's allegation that this was anything to do with the fact that he was born with the assistance of forceps. There was never any follow-up of any medical treatment to Tony at this time. On the advice given to Tony by George Armstrong, he decided he would enlist for naval training in Plymouth. Yet before he completed it, he was discharged as being mentally unfit after attempting to shoot a chief petty officer. Tony had suffered a breakdown after his girlfriend of almost two years died of cervical cancer. Tony then returned to the North East and gained employment first at the sawmills and then at Horden Colliery as a miner, where he worked for five years until his redundancy in 1985. This led Tony to take various temporary jobs across the North East and in London before becoming unemployed in 1992, never to work again. Throughout this time, his first offence being in 1978 in the Juvenile Court, Tony was convicted of a string of dishonesty-related offences, such as fraud. He was also convicted on criminal damage offences, theft and assault. The assault charges were against his mother on the 4th of December 1984 and against another man which he did throw through a panel glass window. 
for the numerous appearances in court, and there is an awful lot, he had been given various punishments such as supervision orders, community service and short-term imprisonment. Tony was married and divorced twice by the time he was 32 years old. His first marriage was to mother of two Christine Teat in late 1981. She said later in interviews that he'd initially seemed very charming. Yes, after their marriage, he fast became a monster. She would describe it as her biggest mistake in life and left Tony after six months, stating that he would explode into a rage, one time grabbing her by the hair and slamming her head into the fireplace when she refused sex. Christine said that he was a strange man and admitted that on one occasion she had caught the adult Tony sharing a bed with his mother. She finally left him after he struck one of her children and later admitted that he had sexually abused her seven-year-old daughter. It was after this breakdown of the relationship a pattern of self-harm by Tony became apparent. By 1994, he had attempted suicide 17 times. The first being documented in 1982, when he took an overdose of his mother's medication and was admitted to St Hilda's Hospital in Hartlepool for two days. The next occasion was on the 18th of May 1984, when he received his divorce. He inflicted cuts to both of his arms and once again was admitted to St Hilda's. Just after this, in the November, he met a friend of his mother's and began a relationship. Yet his mood was still erratic and he was referred to the hospital for his depression a number of times. The relationship did survive this though and they were married on 18th of October 1988. One year after this, a confession was going to be made to Tony that was going to change his world forever. His mother had been diagnosed with cancer and wished to disclose to Tony who his real father was. On discovering that he was a child of incest by his mother and her own father, he began to spiral and lost all contact with his family. Just three months later, on February 28, 1990, his mother Rachel passed and he refused to attend her funeral. He was at breaking point and made an appointment with the Dr Gowans, a clinical psychologist from Hartlepool, and he made admissions about his birth and the sexual abuse he had suffered from his mother. He failed to attend a follow-up appointment made for eight days later and no treatment was ever offered. By July 1991, his relationship was at breaking point and the alcoholic was beginning to attend AA meetings. Things had still not improved by March 1992 and he was actually assaulted by his stepson during an argument in the former family home. A few days later, he was then admitted to Ward 15 at Hartlepool General Hospital, where at other times had accommodated both Armstrong's mother and wife after fears he would make an attempt on his life. The marital problems that Tony was facing were due to his wife discovering that he liked to wear female clothing. 
and there was a historical allegation made against him stating that he had sexually abused his current stepdaughter in 1986. Despite this, social workers and hospital staff tried to arrange a discourse between the couple and just a month after his admittance, he was discharged to return to his wife, who was moving to Plymouth. Tony was diagnosed with personality disorder, yet no follow-up care was arranged. Within six months, difficulties for Armstrong appeared yet again. On the 29th of November 1992, his stepdaughter, then an adult at 22, made further allegations that she and her sister had been subjected to sexual abuse as children and that since his release from Hartlepool Hospital, he had been abusing her daughter, who was just aged two at the time. That day and the following, interviews were held by police, social workers and the toddler, but as no conclusive evidence could be obtained, Armstrong would not be charged with anything as long as he did not live at the family home and have no further contact with the family. This is something he agreed to and he then moved back to the Hartlepool area. For the following 18 months, he spent time between bedsits and homelessness, with regular admittance to the hospital in various attempts to end his life. He was in full contact with social services and had many evaluations conducted. Various diagnoses were made, including personality disorder with addiction problems and psychopathic personality. His spiral was aggravated by a number of failed short-term relationships and further police investigation on the alleged child sexual assault committed against his stepdaughters and grandchild. A social worker made a report in March 1993 that Armstrong posed a danger. The report clearly stated, and these are words from the report, that he was likely to be a risk to any child he comes into contact with. This was never acted upon. He went and asked Cleveland County Council and social services in help to find accommodation in which it was agreed that it would be appropriate to house him in the flat that was later to become a crime scene at 51 Frederick Street. Armstrong was not liked in the area and the allegations of his paedophilia had followed him, giving him the nickname Tony the Pervert. It did make many very uneasy that his home was located very close to two primary schools. Those that knew Tony said that he was very much a Walter Mitty type, as did medical staff. Angela Wager, a barmaid who used to serve him, said how he would say that he'd made £2.4 million from the sale of a farm, that he owned a BMW, and that he had spent hundreds of pounds furnishing his flat. William Stewart, a neighbour and regular at the Brunswick pub, said that he had no friends and he used to drink alone until he'd had a skinful and then he would pester other customers. 
The night before the murder, he was outside of his home taking flash photography of his flat. This was highly annoying to his neighbours, though not considered unusual. He would often take photographs of children and residents in the area without their permission by hiding his camera under his coat and snapping away. So when he was seen outside this flat that night, it was just more rambling actions of the quote, nutter on the street. The discovery of Rosie's body in Armstrong's flat that was only 50 metres from her home was utterly shocking to the community. One woman, Carol Sorden, who helped in the search, spoke to reporters saying, I was out until five in the morning and toured all over the area on my bike. It sickens me to think that all this time she was in the flat just by her home. The further revelation that the home had been searched three times before she was found also appalled residents. A neighbour, 70-year-old Walter Sanderson, said, They have been going through the houses in the area with a fine-toothed comb, looking in cupboards and every nook and cranny. The first time the police entered the property was on July 1st, during door-to-door inquiries, when Armstrong was asked to fill out a questionnaire aiming to help trace the little girl's movements. The second time was the following day when a search of the property was done, as many of the other homes in the area had been. The third and final time, police entered the home and found that Tony appeared very different in manner than he had previously. Armstrong was arrested after the discovery and denied any involvement, saying someone else must have put the body in there. Witnesses came forward to police and a clearer picture of the offence surrounding the disappearance and murder of Rosie came to light. At around 4.30 in the afternoon of the 30th of June, just an hour after she was last seen alive, Tony was seen at a local shop with his dog. When he was being served by the shopkeeper, they made a comment to some blood that Armstrong had on his hand. Tony explained this away by saying he had received a dog bite. The shopkeeper saw no evidence of a dog bite on his hands. A little later, Tony was seen by a friend who asked if he'd like to join him for a pint on the account that it was his birthday. Armstrong said that he couldn't as he was about to go and volunteer to help in the search for a missing girl. No girl had yet been reported missing. Forensic searches were conducted at the flat and found the remains of a pool of blood next to the settee that Armstrong had attempted to clean. A post-mortem was conducted on the preschooler's body yet a cause of death could not be obtained. A reason for this was that it had at least been determined that she'd been killed on the day that she was taken, but the 70 plus hours that had passed meant they could not be sure. 
Beverly said later in a television interview that she did not accept the police's statement that a cause of death was not known. She continued, They don't know how she died or when she died. I am a trained nurse and midwife and they're talking a load of rubbish. They are afraid to release it. Detective Superintendent Doug Smith, who had taken lead on the murder inquiry, said they had a man in custody and he was being questioned. He was unable to speak further on the investigation, yet when he was pushed, he responded by saying, She had been severely sexually assaulted. That is the possible cause of death. The community was united with the family of the murdered girl and against not only Armstrong but the authorities whom they believed were to blame for the tragedy. When the MP came to speak with residents in the days after the crime, standing in front of a mound of teddies and flowers covering the pavement in front of television cameras, public demonstrations began on the estate. People spoke openly with reporters, with all sincerity, that they would begin taking it into their own hands to clean the scum off their streets, if their council wouldn't. The inquest into Rosie's death was held on Thursday 7th of July and overseen by North Cleveland coroner Olaf Bergenroth. The two-minute hearing only heard evidence of Rosie's father, Martin Palmer, who had identified his daughter's body at a viewing in Hartlepool General Hospital. Rosie's funeral was held on July 12, 1994, with more than 2,000 people attending. More than 400 wreaths, teddies and cuddly toys lined the route from her home to the Salvation Army Citadel, and there were many who would shed a tear as her tiny white coffin made its journey through the headland. The murder of Rosie really did shake this community to its core and tensions were running incredibly high. At his first appearance at Hartlepool Magistrates during July 1994, Tony was greeted by a mob of over 200 angry people. When the fan drove up to the court precinct, the crowd surged through the police lines and many had to be arrested. Armstrong's solicitor from a local firm, Malcolm Donnelly, said after this appearance that he could not continue to represent the accused man as the emotions in the town were too high and that he believed another lawyer from out of town should take over. Protests had been arranged outside his law offices and he stated that, I have my staff to think about. Before Armstrong's second appearance before magistrates in Hartlepool on August 3rd, he was appointed a new solicitor, Graham Brown, from the nearby coastal town, Redker. This court hearing, yet again, was not one without unrest. The judge had to make pleas with the 60 crowded into the public gallery, and eventually many had to be removed. The outrage was heard as many stories of Armstrong made national press between his being charged and the trial that was to be held in the summer of 1995. 
He was incarcerated at Durham Prison and one notable story about Tony the Pervert as he was now also being dubbed at in the press was that a doctor had examined him and found two lumps on the man's head. Tests had been carried out and it was reported that the child killer had been diagnosed with malignant melanoma and that he had in fact only had 18 months to live. Sean Anthony Armstrong's trial was held at Leeds Crown Court on Thursday 27th of July 95 and the proceedings were overseen by Mr Justice Ognall. Armstrong appeared in the dock wearing a grey suit, striped shirt and tie with his hair neatly brushed down at collar length. Holding his head down, he remained motionless as he spoke in a quiet voice to confirm his name and enter a plea of not guilty to willful murder. It was set to be a long trial, with Jim Spencer, Queen's counsel, opening for the prosecution. He told of the circumstances around the mid-afternoon on June 30th the previous year. Armstrong had been on a two-day bender, drinking around various public houses and friends' homes, before settling down in a local social club. Just after three that afternoon, he had called for a taxi to take him home, and when he arrived on the street, he saw the defenceless Rosie playing. Just after three in the <coughs> just after three that afternoon, he called for a taxi to take him home, and when he arrived on the street, he saw the defenceless three-year-old Rosie playing. It was then suggested that he snatched her up and took her to his upstairs flat and then raped the girl so viciously she died of her injuries. The Crown presented that he had lived in the flat on Frederick Street for nine months and that he shared a back garden with his downstairs neighbour, which is where he most likely first saw the red-haired girl. The neighbour, Mrs Fox, had grandchildren around the same age as Rosie and she had been known to play in the view of Armstrong's back windows. Throughout the prosecution's opening statements, the jury sat intently watching Mr Spencer clearly lay out the evidence that he was going to present in further detail. Mr Spencer was to then drop a bomb on what was going to be the case of the defence. Whilst on remand at Durham Prison, Armstrong had begun a correspondence with a woman who just wanted to talk. This woman was actually Bernard O'Mahony, a true crime author, who was pretending to be a woman in hopes of getting a confession from the murderer. Armstrong said in his letters to Bernard that he was, in fact, guilty of the murder and he was planning on feigning mental illness in hopes of pleading guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Armstrong was then seen to give a slight nod to his defence counsel. It was just half an hour into the trial when Gilbert Gray, for the defence, stood up and announced that his client wished to change his plea. 
He then spoke of the past psychological issues that had been known in regards to Armstrong and how he was now racked with grief and anguish of his actions and continued, He is now utterly mortified at the misery he has caused. The judge accepted the new plea of guilty and sentenced Armstrong to life imprisonment yet did not set a minimum term for him to serve. Ognall told Armstrong, Your counsel speaks of your anguish and grief. It can seriously be as nothing compared to that suffered by Rosie Palmer's family. The only member of Rosie's family in the courtroom that day was her father, as her mother found the whole ordeal too much to bear. Back in Hartlepool, the headland was eerily silent in the wait for news of a verdict to reach home. Many of the houses on the streets surrounding the Palmer home displayed a poster in their front windows, simply showing an image of the bright little girl with the words, Never Again. As a minimum term had not been set by the sitting judge, A high court ruling came in the May of 2006. Mr Justice Crane, after taking into consideration the offence of the case, set a minimum term to 16 years, subject to a deduction of 12 months and 21 days for the period that Armstrong had spent on remand. Armstrong was eligible for parole in July 2011. During April 2010, Beverly, Rosie's mother, launched a campaign supported by her former neighbours and residents of the Headland area to ensure that if and when Tony was to be released, that he would be ordered to sign the Sex Offenders Register. As he had not been convicted of a sex crime and only of murder, he was not required to do so on his release. The tragedy of losing such a young, promising life is one that I can never imagine and it is often documented to tear families apart at the seams. For Rosie's family, it was no different. Wilf Aves, Rosie's grandfather, a 66-year-old retired seaman, did something that he believed he was never capable of before. Two days after the funeral, on July 14th, there was a disturbance at the victim's home on Henrietta Street, in which the police and ambulance services were in attendance. Wolf had struck John Thornton, Rosie's stepfather, in the chest with a kitchen knife, wrongly believing that he was Rosie's murderer, despite Armstrong being in custody. He was remanded until a hearing at Teesside Crown Court and during this time he went on a hunger strike and furthermore refused any medical treatment for his diabetes or epilepsy. John's wounds were determined to be non-life-threatening and returned home the same day with what was described as a nicked chest. Wolf was subsequently found guilty of wounding, but cleared of the charge of wounding with intent due to the mitigating circumstances around the case. 
In the months after the murder, the police, social services and local council were under heavy criticism from outraged residents and press alike. Doug Smith, the head of Cleveland CID, said in a press conference, in defence of the police's actions, If Rosie was in the same position as when she was discovered, then I have got to be honest and say the police should have found her but we don't know that she was. Social services defended their actions in their decision to house Armstrong in the Headland area, despite his past troubling psychological problems. Mr Behan said, He presented himself to ask advice on accommodation. There was no reason to suspect anything else. There was no suspicions in relation to childcare concern. In June of 1996, a report in the psychiatric care provided to Armstrong was published. The local health authority did criticise the standard of care, saying it was inadequate and full of shortcomings, yet added that the murder of Rosie could not have been predicted. The following year in June, Beverly launched a £200,000 compensation bid against the Tees Health Authority and Hartlepool and East Durham NHS Trust, claiming negligence for allowing Armstrong to be released into the public from their care. In February 1998, the case was heard at the High Court, but thrown out by Master Hodgins as he believed there was no basis for such compensation. It was then brought before the Court of Appeals and on July 1st, 99, Lord Justice Stuart Smith upheld the High Court judge's ruling and the case was dropped. Armstrong made national headlines yet again when he was granted legal aid in his bid for £15,000 worth of compensation against Bernard O'Mahony. He stated that the author had breached his confidence. Armstrong was also at this time trying to halt the publishing of the book by O'Mahony, Flowers in God's Garden, that included details of the case. Yet both cases were dropped in June of 2002, having already cost thousands of pounds. Soon after the discovery of Rosie, Beverly and John separated. Beverly moved with her daughter Emma to Devon in hopes of starting afresh and said in a magazine interview of the experience, You have the most ignoble and unworthy feelings. Life has no sense. I know as a nurse and midwife that the worst form of pain is described as exquisite. That's exactly what I feel now. The flat was scheduled for demolition soon after the conclusion of the trial. And that's the end of the case. What did you think? Could this whole thing have been avoided? It is very clear that there were issues relating to his relationship with children in the past. And I am very unsure at why no one could have seen how this highly volatile man could have gone and done what he did 
because to me it seems that he had only two options. One was to go on and hurt someone else and the other was to kill himself. And I really wish he'd done the latter. Let me know on social media. I found this case to be one of the most disturbing I've ever had to research and I can't help wonder what kind of life Rosie may have had if she was able to have grown up. Now we have a promo for the Deadly Bones podcast. Good morning. Are you ready for an old-fashioned radio show reminiscent of 1940s audio dramas and creature features? Then look no further than the Deadly Bones Show. That's right, it's me, your new favorite morning radio show host, Deadly Bones. Follow me, a 1980s radio DJ lost in a post-apocalyptic radioactive future, and discover tales of monsters and the supernatural from cultures around the world. If you like shows like Lights Out, Tales from the Crypt, Twilight Zone, or Are You Afraid of the Dark, then tune in every month to The Deadly Bones Show. So that was the Deadly Bones podcast. All of the show's information will be in the show notes, so please go give them a listen and show your support. Now, before the end of every episode, I like to see if we can balance the scale somewhat and do an act of kindness. This week, I suggest you reach out to someone you can trust with something that you're going through and to be there for someone who needs someone to talk to too. Recently, I have really been struggling with my mental health and I would not have got through the last week or so without some of the most wonderful friends and an online community who have actually surrounded me with so much support and kindness. A notable shout out should go to JT over at the True Crime Lab, who has put up with an awful lot of rambling messages and has only really responded with understanding. So this week, if you can, go be there for others and share what you're going through too, because a problem shared is a problem half. So that's it from me. I'm going to go back to binging on Lost because the smoke monsters got me really confused. Anything's better than the sneaker though. With that, go be good people, go be kind, go be safe and most importantly, go be happy. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.